Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll just deal with the first four verses this morning. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you and come to your Word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to it, that we would have understanding and insight, Lord, that they would just be more than than words on a page, but they would be living and and strong, that they would penetrate us, Lord, that we would know how you call us to live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. There's a uh, little book on my shelf written by John Murray. It's called Redemption, Accomplish, and Applied. And it's, it's one of those books that every minister has to have because it's uh, so good and so important. And every so often we should go back and read it because it teaches us so much about the finished work of Jesus Christ. And in it he writes this. Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. Union with Christ underlies every aspect of salvation. It was in Christ the people of God were chosen before the foundation of the world. It was in Christ they were redeemed by his blood. He loved the church and gave himself for it. The people of God were quickened together in Christ and raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Now this morning we are going to begin a uh, series, and I, I don't know how long it's going to be. Um, it's, not like the, it's not like the series on the Psalms, which are going to go on for 20 years. Okay, um, But we are going to study one of the greatest theological topics that we could find in scripture and one of the most important topics for our Christian lives and that is our union with Christ. Now you might think well gee Rand uh, when are we going to get to the you know the five steps to have a godly marriage and and the four steps to understand what the Holy Spirit wants from us and and the three the three steps to uh, guaranteed happiness when are we going to do those things those are simple I can get my teeth into those union with Christ well that's the one topic that will underlie all other things. If you are not united with Christ, you have nothing. 
You have no hope. You have no ability to do anything. You want a happy marriage? You can have a happy marriage in the things of life. Yeah, you can go on together, but you will not understand the fullness of that unless you are united in Christ. You want to understand what the Lord has for you? You will not understand it apart from your union with Christ. Now, the concept of our union with Christ is clearly, uh, clearly scriptural, otherwise we wouldn't be looking at it. But for the first 1,500 years of the history of the church, union with Christ was some sort of, uh, how do I want to say, it was some sort of mystery and uh, it, was, it was sought after by those who ran out to the desert and wanted to live by themselves for several years and, until they began to see visions and, and killed everything that they could in their flesh and then they thought they would have union with Christ, they could be closer to Christ in that fashion. It wasn't until the time and, and, uh, that the Reformers came along, specifically John Calvin, and where the term mystical union came into being. Now, mystical union is really mystical, obviously, from mystery, and there is this, how is it, there, there's this concept, how is it that we can be united with Christ? Because Christ is where? Christ is seated at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. But yet Christ is here with us. Now, how can he be in two places at one time? Uh, it is a, what, mystery, okay? But there is this mystical union that the believer has with Christ that is repeated again and again in many and various ways throughout Scripture. Now, the Cistercian, Cistercian I never can quite say that word right, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux. 12th century monk wrote a lot about this and he is really um, he's one of the great guys if you ever get a chance to read anything by Bernard of Clairvaux uh, it is it is simple enough for anybody to read and it is deep and it is rich and he never uses the term mystical union that doesn't come along till Calvin and the reformers in the 1500s but he writes about this and kind of sets the stage for when the reformers come along and the reformers say, you know what, you don't experience this union with Christ out in the desert, fasting and, and, and uh, in a monastic lifestyle, uh, you experience it in God's word. You experience through it through belief in Christ and the understanding that all you have and all that you are is his. In fact, Calvin writes, he says, our union with Christ is rooted not in humanity in their achievement of holiness or sanctification, but our union with Christ is rooted in what God has done in Christ for us. Rather than view Christians first and foremost in some microscopic context of their own progress as if, well, my union with Christ is based upon how good I am or how hard I work and things like that, he says, no, the Reformed doctrine of our union with Christ, first of all, sets us in the larger picture of God's activity in redemptive history. You think, well, my, you know, my relationship with Christ, so much in, in the evangelical church today, is based upon me and my friend Jesus and my personal relationship with Christ. Well, really, our union with Christ is based upon redemptive history. Now, redemptive history is all that the Lord is doing to save his people throughout history. That is redemptive history. And that is the context of our union with Christ. What God is doing in the world and how we 
are part of that. It is God's activity. So, again, Calvin, seeing oneself in this context enables the individual to grow into true holiness. Nevertheless, there is a subjective aspect of our union with Christ, which receives equal attention in Scripture and therefore commands equal attention from us. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, we are separated from him. From all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. As long as we have Christ over there. As long as Randy talks about Christ. As long as my spouse has Christ. As long as my parents talk about Christ. He has no part in me. See, Christ cannot be over there. Christ cannot be just in my spouse's life. It cannot be just in my parents' life. It has to be in my life. I have to understand who Christ is. I must be united with Christ. It is like, I'm not getting in on anybody's coattails. I'm not getting in in, in, in some great mass of people who are caught up in things. I must be united with Christ. All of our righteousness, holiness, redemption, and blessing are found outside of us. They are found in Christ. I have none of my own. I have no righteousness of my own. I, I only have righteousness when I am united with Christ. I only have blessing when I am united with Christ. I can only find salvation in Christ. That's the only place. It is the work of Christ. It is either Christ in us, Christ in me, or it is my efforts. And my efforts will not make it. Now this is the declaration of Scripture. It is the thoughts of the Reformers because the Reformers said, well, this is what Scripture says, so this is what we do. In the face of a subjective righteousness. Well, God will accept mine, right? Because mine is good. I'm doing fine, and I'm working hard. And, and sure enough, the Lord is going to look upon Randy and go, Randy... You did your very best, and you know what? You're in. That's not what it says. A righteousness based upon my own efforts will get me nowhere. It is a righteousness that is found only in my union with Christ. Again, Calvin, he talks about an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs to somebody else. Okay, that comes and dwells within me, something that I partake of. It belongs to somebody else. And if that righteous one remains outside of me for all my life, and I'm just kind of in the neighborhood of Christ, if I'm close to Christ, but, but never am a partaker of Christ, am I never united with Christ? You know, I, I was always in the neighborhood of Christ. Well, you know what? The neighborhood is only, what's, what, you know, it's, it's close, what, come on, sorry. Um, the neighborhood, it's only good enough for hand grenades, right? Okay, it's as long as it lands in the neighborhood of somebody. Well, the being in the neighborhood of Christ is not enough. You must be in Christ, in Christ. You're either in or you're out. It's like this. You look in your account one day in your checkbook and you find that you have no money in your checkbook. And you think, well, gee, I still have bills to pay, and I've got these things. You go, what am I going to do? And then you look the next day, and you're doing online banking because, you know, you're, you're modern. And you, you look in there, and all of a sudden there is money in your account, and you don't know how it got there because you didn't put it there. 
So you call up the bank, and, and the bank says, well, yes, somebody put it in there. And they said, who? You say, who? And say, I don't know. And you, you think to yourself, well, it's not mine. I didn't, didn't work for it. I didn't put it in there. I don't know where it came from. Uh, but yet the bank says it is yours, and you can spend it. That's somewhat what it means to be united with Christ and have his righteousness. It's not your own. You don't know how it got there other than that Christ must have put it in there. But now you can spend it. Now you can make use of it. Now you can enjoy it and receive the blessing of his righteousness in your life. While none of our righteousness is our own, Christ is our own. While none of our holiness belongs to us, properly speaking, Christ belongs to us. Now the demons know Christ is righteous, but they do not believe it is their righteous. In fact, the demons are smart enough to know what? He's the son of God and they are shaken in their boots because he's the son of God. So this brings us to Romans chapter 8 in our passage for this morning. It is Romans chapter 8 as a whole is probably, and this is my view, um, one of the greatest chapters of Scripture. Uh, and the first four verses of chapter 8, if there was such a thing as the Christian life for dummies, this would pretty much sum it up. Okay? You don't need a book this long for the Christian life for dummies. It can be summarized in these four verses. And we're really going to look at only two things out of these verses. There are many more that we could, could look at, but only two things. Paul asserts that every man, woman, child in this world who is found in Jesus Christ faces no condemnation. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And secondly, if you are in Christ, you have been set free. You are no longer bound by the chains of this world and the chains of sin. You are free in Christ. Now, you, I don't want you to think that we're saying, well, there's no condemnation for me. I can go and do anything I please, right? Wrong. Okay. Because if there's truly no condemnation for you because you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are united with Christ, then your heart's been changed and you don't want to go do anything that you want to do. You want to go and do what? Christ wants you to do. You will do it imperfectly, but yet you will pursue the things of Christ. So number one, Christians are no longer under condemnation. Now you'll notice, as Paul does so often in the beginning, right there in verse one is the fabulous word, therefore. Therefore. So the first thing we do is look and see what it is, therefore. Go back to chapter five. Just back a couple pages, Paul, I, I'm pretty sure, is drawing a conclusion in the context of chapter 8 from the context of what he has written previously. Uh, and I think there's a link here if you go to chapter 5, verse 16. And this is only one of the many portions we could, we could look at there. Verse 16 and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgments arose from the one transgression, resulting in condemn condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. So what we have here is there is condemnation and there is justification. 
Look over at verse 18, just down a couple. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Of course, all men who are in Christ. This is not a universalist doctrine. We're only talking about those who are in Christ. So Paul, when we go back to chapter 8, in the verse 1, Paul seems to be reflecting on this kind of concept here when he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's almost as if he said, I, this is what I've been saying, this is what I've been preaching to you, this is what I want you to really understand. If you are in Christ, there's no condemnation. There is no condemnation. It's important for us to see that Paul means this, of course, in relationship to Jesus Christ, in relationship to Jesus Christ alone. We'll see it again repeatedly uh, in verse 2, that you are free from the law of sin and death. And we'll look at that as, as our second point there. But there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And again, I refer to, to Calvin. He says, so long as Christ remains outside of us, all that he accomplished for us remains useless and of no value. So it's as if we can sit here. If you, if you put on a uh, water-repellent coat and you go out in the rain and you got your hood on and you tie it nice and tight and, and everything and the water comes and it does what to you? Rolls right off of you. It repels. But you're immersed in the rain. You're out in the rain, right? You think, well, why don't I get wet? Because it's repellent. I'm all around the rain. The rain hits me everywhere. And then you are dry. And that's, that's pretty much what Paul is talking about here. If Christ remains outside of us, it's almost like, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm near Christ and I'm close to Christ, but there's a repellent on me. And that's, that's, it just doesn't, he doesn't seem to impact me. I think he does. But really, my life has not been changed at all. I'm close to Christ. And, and Calvin says, if he remains outside of us, all that he accomplished remains useless and of no value to us. No value. That which Christ has accomplished for us on the cross needs to be internalized. Internalized. You've got to take the water-repellent coat off. You've got to get out in the rain and let it soak you all. This is full belief. This is you're on the high dive and, you know, one step off and you commit. And this is what we're talking about in faith. This is not a, a, a you, you can't go off the high dive one piece at a time. You know, it's, it's, it's all or nothing. And, and you can, if you're an honest seeker, somebody who's, who's interested. I mean, I, I come to church and I'm interested in the things of Christ and I want some answers. There's a process in getting you up to there, and, and that, that's God's grace in, in helping you understand and teaching you. Sooner or later, there's a belief process that Christ must be internalized, and that's all or nothing. You can't have it in just a little bit. It takes a total commitment because there's only one answer to our sin, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, you remember in the opening chapters of Romans, Paul is, is talking about sin, and he says there's none righteous. This is, there's no righteous ones, there's not even one. You've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He makes it clear. And, and that means everyone who has ever lived has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If you were conceived, you have 
sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is your nature. So he's referring to Jews. He's referring to Gentiles. He's referring to those who are within the covenant, those who are without the covenant. He talks about everybody falling into this category. And he concludes that there is none righteous. None. That's a pretty inclusive statement. None righteous. And the greatest question, therefore, that we can, can ever ask about this issue if there's none righteous, given the fact that all have sinned, all have come fallen short of the glory of God, how therefore can a sinner be found in a right relationship with God? If I'm tainted by sin, if I'm covered by sin, how can I be in relationship with God? Not just any God, not a God of my making. Because I, I can make a God that looks a lot like me who's really forgiving. But this is the true God. This is the God who is righteous. This is the God who can have no sin in his presence. How can somebody like me stand in his presence and be forgiven? God has found a way to be true to himself, true to his nature of holiness and righteousness and, and, and justice, and also be the justifier of those who are sinful. You know, we have offended him with our sin, but what does he do? He comes and gets us. He comes and makes the way where we can be restored. It's not as if he's standing up there in heaven going, you know what? Once you get it together, then once you get it right, then you can come into my presence because the problem is we'll never get it right. So he has made the way. He has taken the, the step. And he has pursued us, and he is just, and he is the justifier at the same time. Now look at uh, chapter 7 of Romans. We see that Paul struggles with this. Man, I mean, Paul, if you had to pick the number one Christian of the first century outside of Jesus Christ himself, it's probably Paul. Although he wouldn't like us bragging on him because he said, I'm the chief of sinners. And, 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 but Paul was clearly somebody chosen by God empowered by the Holy Spirit to do great things. And, and uh, we're still, you know, feasting upon the words that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. So he's, he's struggling with how this justification is manifest in his own life. Look at uh, what I say, verse uh, 15 of chapter 7. And, 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 and this is something that we should, you know, we should be pretty familiar with Paul's struggles here. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. I'm in that category. Okay. The wishing, I, I want to do this, but oh man, it's just so hard. Lord, can't you make it easier for me? Hmm. He says, I've forgiven you. I've empowered you to do it. You have the Holy Spirit lives within you, Rand. All you have to do is what? Obey. That's all you have to do. And maybe this is our experience this morning. We come here and, and we're conscious of what we want to be as believers and where we fall short in the midst of that. Or maybe you come as, as somebody who's honestly seeking and, and to, to understand what this, this Christianity is about. And, and, and you, even in your heart, you know that, yeah, there are things I'd like to do that I, I'm, I know are, are things I don't want to do because I know they're wrong, but, but I do them. 
and things I know that are right to do, but I don't do them. And so how is this possible? What's the struggle that goes on within inside of me? Verse uh, 19 of, of chapter 7. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present and in me, the one who wishes to do good. And then jump down to verse 24. Paul is, uh, can't take it anymore. He says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? He says, this is the struggle. This is, this is Paul. The Christian, this is Paul, the example. And he says, I just, I, I'm tired of fighting this sin. I know what I want to be. S deliver me from this body of death. And when he says that, I hope you remember this. When he says that, he is referencing a specific type of execution that the Romans did in the first century. Okay? If I came and I killed somebody here, okay? Let's say I killed Joyce, all right? It's, it's just like, you know, you're there. Okay, I pick on Joyce on Thursday because she sits on the right side. And I'm right-handed, so naturally I make illustrations on my right. I kill Joyce. And I'm convicted of that murder. The Romans would then take Joyce's dead body and attach it to me. And I would have to carry her around until it killed me. That's what Paul is referencing here. Who will, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, sin is like this dead body that I carry around, that I just, it's killing me. He says, who will deliver me from it? Even though Paul is saved, even though Paul has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, he said, there's sin that is still hanging on in my life, and I just want to get rid of it. But if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Yes, I have sinned. Yes, I've fallen short of the glory of God. Yes, everyone in this room fits that same description. Yes, I've come to Christ. I've put my faith in Him. But I continue to sin. But sin remains in my life, but it no longer reigns in my life. Even though at this very moment I fall short of the glory of God. But I'm in Christ Jesus. I am resting in Him. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. No condemnation. That's number one. Number two. Chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We have been set free free. Now, as I read this and as I study it, I think we're talking about two different sets of laws here, okay? Uh, now, he doesn't elaborate on this, but we'll see in a couple other spots uh, what I think this means. For the law of the Spirit is life in Christ Jesus. I think he's referring to the law as far as the Ten Commandments, and there, because there are good portions of the law that Paul references on a regular basis. He does in uh, chapter 7, uh, several times in, in verse 7, in verse 16, in verse 22. He says, I delight in the law. Okay, so that's a good. I think he's referring to the Ten Commandments because those are God's rules. He sets them out. This is the way that you are to live. But I think at the end of the verse here, he's dealing with the law of sin and death. So it's, it's not quite the Ten Commandments that he's dealing with here. Uh, it's that law that we can never satisfy. 
St. Jerome of, of Antioch uh, was a, a translator. In fact, he did the Bible into Latin. It's called the Vulgate. And he was one of the early church fathers. And he wanted to really experience the Lord in, in, a, in a way that was, was cleansing, in a way that he, he could get rid of these temptations of the flesh. So naturally he went to the desert. All these old guys went out to the desert to purify themselves and to get rid of the desires of the flesh. Okay? So he went through these extreme methods of fasting and uh, abusing his body and trying to conquer what we'll, what we'll call the, the flesh. And he did this in an effort to live by the standards of God's law as he understood them. And in that time, he wasted away to almost nothing. And he writes, in an auto, he writes autobiographically here as he tells the story uh, about what went on there. And he says, and I'll just give you the paraphrase of it. He says, while I'm out there and I'm wasting away and I'm starving myself and I'm beating my body and, and getting my flesh under control, he said, the only thing that I could think of or the thing that kept coming back to my mind was being back in Rome surrounded by young women. Okay? So there he is in the desert and his body is under control, but his mind continues to go back to the things of sin of his former life. He said, that, those are the thoughts that kept filling my mind out in the desert. In fact, all that the law did for him was to heighten his, sinful, his natural sinful condition. Because that's what the law does. The law condemns. The gospel brings life. That's why Paul says the law of the spirit of life has set you free. See, the gospel has set you free. There are only two ways of salvation. It's either by grace or by law. And if you choose to follow the law of God, you have to follow it how? Perfectly. Perfectly. You must do it without any blemish, without any spot, without any defect. It must be perfect. The law knows nothing of mercy. The law knows nothing of grace. The law knows nothing of forgiveness. It is relentless. As I was, as I was putting this together, I thought... If you've read the book, Les Mis, if you've ever seen one of the movies, my mind was taken back to one of the movies that was in black and white, and it's the story, just to recap, uh, this man is, uh, I hope I get it all right, He's, he's convicted of stealing a loaf of bread to feed his family, so he goes away to prison and he gets out. And, and then he becomes this, this you know, great guy and he does all these great things. And he adopts this uh, girl and, uh, am I getting it right? I don't want to confuse my, my old books. And then something happens and they find out that he's, he's still alive. And who comes after him? Is it Jean Valjean? Is that the detective? Who? Javier. He's the detective and comes after him. He is the law. There's no forgiveness. There's no, there's no stopping it. There is no mercy in the law. And he comes after him again and again and again. And right at the end, um, uh, Jean Valjean has rescued his fu future son-in-law from the revolution. And um, Javier is, is standing outside waiting to arrest him and take him off into prison. And he's going to go gladly. And there's this moment, and, and, and the actor does it so well, it's almost like the law can't fathom mercy. It can't fathom grace. So the detective does what? Goes and jumps in the canal. 
He, he can't, this is, forgiveness is not part of his life. He is all about the law. And the law says you have to pay. If you have made a mistake, you have to pay. And all of a sudden he sees this guy giving up almost all that he is to save somebody else's life. And he goes and he walks off in the canal and he's gone. Because the law could not understand forgiveness. It demanded perfection. Because whoever fails to keep the law, even in the tiniest detail, keeps nothing of the law. You want to try and earn your way to heaven? You have to be perfect. You have to be perfect. Doing your best will not cut it. The law does not understand my best. It does not accept my best. It accepts only perfection. I hope you've come to realize this. Come to appreciate that by the works of the law, no man, no woman, no child can be saved. You have to come to appreciate this morning, I hope, that Paul, what Paul is saying here, that it's either by the law or it is by grace. There is no other way. And Paul is saying that the law of the spirit of life, that is of Jesus Christ, has set me free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And once you are in Christ, once you are united with Christ, then you are free. Then you are free. If you're on the law treadmill, you're trying to do one more good deed, you're trying to do it better, you're trying to do it perfectly. And friends, if that's the way you're going, it's nothing but condemnation. If you think you can get to heaven on your own, if you think I can just get it together, God will accept me. If you just give it up to Christ, he will accept you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even reading these words, I still wonder why you would do such a thing. For the likes of us that you would send your Son. For the likes of us who are imperfect, selfish, fickle, Yet Christ died for us, and, and not when we got unselfish, not when we got unfickle, but while we were still in our sin, he died for us. It is there that our eyes are open in the midst of our sin that there is a love and a grace and a mercy that we can experience no other place in this world other than in Christ Jesus. Lord, for those of us who have already experience this, who know this, whose hearts have been changed. I pray that you would put a desire for a deeper union with Christ in our lives, that we might know more of him, that we might know more of his grace and of his mercy and his love. Lord, not just so that we can hoard it in our own lives, but so that we can give it away, so that it is it so overflows in our lives that we can't, we can't hold it in. It just comes out. It comes out in every relationship. It comes out in every word that we say, in every attitude that we hold, in every action that we take. And Lord, for those who might be here today who are, who are honestly want, want to know more about this, who want to understand this, fix in their hearts that there's no doing good enough to get into your grace. There is only the law which demands perfection. But there is the grace of Jesus Christ that is available to all who believe, to all who confess their faith. You will come and change their hearts. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.